0: This is a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a film criticism show, right here on 3 Triple R. We've got a full cave tonight. My name's Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening all. Good Hello. evening. Good evening. On tonight's show, we are going to take a look at our Westerns, starting with a recent home release, a home entertainment release, The Salvation. This is set in America in 1870, where Mads Mikkelsen plays a Danish immigrant who encounters violence and tragedy, staying... Around that same era, we'll then look at Slow West, where this time the immigrant is Scottish and played by Cody Smith-McPhee, a young man searching for the love of his life and accompanied by a mysterious outlaw played by Michael Fassbender. And then we're going to move forward two centuries, relocate to Spain and slide over into the detective genre. We're going to finish the show discussing Marshland, a complex murder mystery set in an era of political instability in the south of Spain. Uh, A sort of time and setting that's not unlike the frontier setting of the classical western, tying it nicely all together.
1: Well, let's start with The Salvation. Yeehaw. Uh, so The Salvation, as you mentioned, is a Danish western, uh, although it's filmed in Johannesburg, South Africa, as opposed to the Johannesburgs everywhere else in the world, <laughs> uh, and it's set in, in America. It's directed, from, uh, directed by Danish director Christian Levering, and it revolves around two Danish brothers, John, played by Mads Mikkelsen, and Peter, both of whom are ex-soldiers who fled defeat from a war at the end of 1864 and relocated to the... The Frontier Land of America. And the beginning of this film, they're awaiting the arrival of John's wife and child, from whom he's been separated for seven years. But the joyous reunion is short-lived. He has to share a stagecoach with an unfortunate criminal who rapes and murders his child and wife. Justice is swift. We have the character of John killing off the, the criminal. This all happens in the very early stages. I'm just describing the entire plot of the film here. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, and unbeknownst to, to John, the criminal is a brother of Delarue, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, a gang leader of sorts, and the husband to a woman named Princess, a mute, played by Eva Green. Mute because she's uh, encountered or had a rather unfortunate encounter with the natives. And without going into too much detail, John and Peter are left in a rather precarious position vis-a-vis the very corrupt community run by a corrupt mayor, a corrupt preacher, and a corrupt sheriff who happens to be the same person. Look, I think there's two potentially fruitful ideas that are established at the beginning of this film. One is the idea of, given it's a Danish Western, the immigrant tale and this idea of two brothers or or two immigrants who have escaped war, two ex-soldiers and have relocated to a land that is contested territory, that is the frontiers land, that is scarred by violence and are trying to kind of carve out I guess their own sort of niche or space um, and, and overcoming the wounds of the past and then also bringing into that space the the wife and child to create the homestead, and and one of those I think is is innovative, potentially innovative. The other is I guess um, a stock trope of the west and reconciling the lone frontiersman type of masculinity with the uh, with the potential, the possibility of the family life. I mean this is what we talked about with Mad Max just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the western tropes. And So here we have Mad Mads I guess you
2: could say. <laughs> mad Mads, that's a great film title.
1: <laughs> Maybe this is, film should have been called Mad Mads <laughs> The Salvation. Um, but my problem with I guess this, this film generally speaking is that I think both of those ideas are effectively killed off the moment the wife and child are killed off in the opening minutes of the film and it becomes a fair Barely. bland, stock-standard revenge narrative, which I could have been incredibly forgiving of if it had had a sense of drama and action, but I found this film really limp and and really plodding and, and poorly scripted. And, look, I, I also want to flag one thing that maybe it's, it's a bugbear of mine it's, it's worth talking about, and that is I was really aware, because I'm quite a fan of Westerns, but I was aware in this film the use of digital effects. I thought there's some really dinky, hokey CGI effects in here, and I think of all the classic... Hollywood genres in that transition from film to digital I think maybe the western fares the worst because for me my experience of the western is so informed by the the colour and the grain and the stock of that cinematic celluloid that here it it just feels cheap and, and nasty, whereas I think you can get away with the, with cheap Westerns in, in film and still maintain the aesthetic of that. So Mads Mickelson aside, who I think is born to, to play the Western Frontiersman protagonist, yeah, this film, I, I, this film was a real struggle
3: for me. Hmm. Mad, Mads is uh, he's always fascinating on screen He's got this very severe beauty to him he's, He has a Danish Christopher Walken-esque quality Amazing cheekbones He was born to be in a Western, I completely agree But yeah, I, I also have some issues with the film It, it, it does feel a bit flat um, the, the most dramatic thing that happens And it happens altogether too early and, in fact, it doesn't even entirely really make a lot of sense. They're all on a stagecoach together. Where Where is this newly released outlaw actually going? Because the stagecoach seemed to be bound for the middle of nowhere where their homestead was, and I can't imagine any good reason for him and his cohort to be on it. Um but look, there's a few interesting things in it. Uh, Jonathan Price as a mere slash undertaker. That's an unusual combination. And an undertaker on the take is, is a nice little slant. I haven't quite seen that before. As, as I've racked my brains a little trying to think of whether I've seen an undertaker who was up to genuinely no good other than dealing generally with the dead, which I'd rather other people do as a rule anyway. But I generally don't cast aspersions on that profession <laughs> most of the time.
2: I'm glad you cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> someone 's got to do it and uh, but, and, and the, the, the funny thing there is one running joke throughout the film, which is the presence of oil just just on the uh, the fringes of the city and No one seems to have quite grasped that that well not quite no one, but generally no, no one much seems to have quite grasped that that might come in handy at some point in the future. So, look, there's some fun to be had in this film, and there's some quite lovely cinematography, though it doesn't seem uh, true to the genre. I know what you mean, Josh, missing that grain. Uh, But, uh, look, I had a, a nice time with this rather violent
0: western. I quite enjoyed it as well, but the entire time I was desperately trying to look for the subtext because it felt like a film that was going to hit you with some amazing revelation and subtext. And I don't think films necessarily have to have subtext or meaning, but this felt like it was building to something, and it wasn't there. I mean, I think the references to oil is as close as it gets, and it's a pity that the most overt reference to oil is a big cgi shot. And I agree, Josh, the CGI was particularly bad in this film. It was just very distracting and overly colour-graded as, as well... And not done in a stylized way either. It was trying to look like, you know, the vast west of a Sergio Leone film and it drew attention to its artificiality so much, which is a pity because there's a great tradition of Europeans making Western Absolutely. films. Um, but, you know, so I enjoyed it on a purely superficial level. I mean, you've got a, the hero trying to get vengeance and the film really makes sure you're aware that he's owed his vengeance and, and it really makes sure you're aware that the villain is so dastardly and does horrible things uh, to the point it comes dangerously close to self-parody at at points Um, like I said I enjoyed it but there there is yeah I can't recall the time I've seen a film in recent times that they're so desperately screamed out for some kind of subtext or substance to justify what we were watching
2: I think this film if you'd like Mads Mikkelsen you're going to love this film full stop I think it's virtually impossible to not enjoy the enjoyment that he's having on screen in this role like I think we're all in agreement he was born to play this kind of character
0: yeah and he's great he's fantastic
2: but I am going to do something that film critics aren't really renowned for doing I'm going to give a shout out to Eva Green um, which is not Josh I believe that you might be with me on this yeah
1: I'll let you take the lead on this one
2: Um, I think she was really remarkable in this film I think that she she had a presence that that really and it sounds like I'm perhaps overcooking it, but at times she really struck me as almost like a hybrid of um, a young Charlotte Rampling and Claudia Cardinale. I thought that she was just incredible in this film, and I think that she was as well-suited to a Western as Mads Mikkelsen was. Mm. That being said, I think that while she's one of the film's strongest points, I think she's grossly underutilised, and the film almost really goes out of its way to deny her not just her agency, but any kind of story of her own um, that doesn't fit into the male story, um, which I found hugely problematic um, in particular relation to the issue of mutinous. Now, her muteness alone flags a really deliberate link to uh, rape revenge films and that kind of trope and tradition. Um, and this is a, an interest of mine, so I'm going to indulge in this for a moment. Now, the muteness in Westerns is not new. Um, I think Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence from 1968 is probably the most immediately... Uh, For me, at least, it was the first film that came to mind. But certainly in rape narratives, we go back to at least Johnny Belinda from 1948, which um, is a rape film a rape narrative that borrowed the figure of the mute female victim hero from the spiral staircase from 1945. But of course we have films like They Call Her One Eye or Thriller A Cruel Picture, Miss um, mm. 45, Savaged a uh, film from last year, a rape revenge film, even Savage Streets, the lesser known Linda Blair film. These all involve muteness.
0: Um, it's pre-cinema too, this theme. Yeah, I mean,
2: absolutely. It's, it's the Titus
0: Andronicus. It's a major Absolutely. Theme. It's yeah. a really
2: I mean, there's a really strong history. So yeah. I think by Salvation putting this, this muteness, this mute aspect to the Eva Green character was really significant and rape revenge westerns are really common as well. Um, Hanny Calder, Hangun uh, Lena Wertmuller's Bell star story, even Al Adamson's Jesse's Girls not necessarily progressive I don't think if you introduce this aspect to a western you're necessarily doing something subversive or radical um, but at least they're doing something with it and that's what I found so frustrating with this film is that they gave her very consciously all of these film history connections and then really didn't go anywhere with them and almost denied them being important. Um, and I found that really frustrating and, and really difficult, actually, just as a viewer. Um, I, have a, I think I have a growing bugbear with the phrase revisionist Western. I think that people just say it now to mean post-classical Western, um, that they're all automatically the same thing. I don't know whether I'd be comfortable calling this technically a revisionist Western because it's, I mean, there's a hell of a big gap between the Salvation and Clint East, Eastwood turning up to a town painted red that's called Hell. But we're, we're talking about really different kinds of Westerns here.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really important point to make. I just want to quickly say just just what you said about some of the other characters in the film. I would see a sequel to this film if it came out based on what characters survived because I think this film actually sets up some characters to go on and be, be the stars of a really interesting film.
1: Yeah, and even even with that, the uh, how do I say this without giving away the characters yeah. that survive? <laughs> the, the, Mads Mickelson makes a, a a quote at the end of the film regarding the Eva Green character, which suggests that her object status may persist. And I found that really troubling in light of the fact that she's treated almost like a a mute. Mannequin sex bot for most of this film and in fact she's not just raped or there's not the insinuation of rape on one occasion but multiple instances and I found the way in which the film like you just mentioned Alex takes away or strips her agency really troubling and not just in isolation here and I don't think this film is is aiming for great exploitation in terms of the depictions of sexual violence but the last three or four years, and maybe I've just become more aware of it given how promising Eva Green was as a performer when she burst onto the, onto the stage with, like, the dreamers and, and films like that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And in the last few years, she's been the victim of sexual violence in the Sin City sequel in 300. She seems to be coming really... Cast type in these horrific roles, and maybe maybe these are the roles she's going for. So you know, all power to her if, she, if that's how she wants to dictate her own career. But I, I find it troubling on a number of levels, given the skill that she is as a performer and the way in which that sexual violence is being treated in her in, in recent performances or in recent representation.
3: Did you say she was in The Dreamers? Mm. Yeah, okay. That was her big I debut. Think, yeah, yeah. I've long forgotten that. I, yeah, I, underrated I, film. Because I was trying yeah. to place her. I haven't actually seen these blockbusters she's been in recently. And and, I, and Bond Girl. She was actually the
1: Bond Girl in the same film in which Mads Mikkelsen was the Bond villain. And we have Jonathan Price who was also a Bond villain. This is like Bond villains gathering the West in a Danish <laughs> Western. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> it would have been a, a rather long-winded title as opposed to <laughs> Mad Mads. But you actually, know. it's weird saying this, but this isn't the first Danish western we've covered, is it? What was the film with Bradley Cooper and um, uh, Selma Jennifer? Was it, was it was. It called. called Selma? No, it wasn't Selma. Was Selma? It Selma. <laughs> what was it? Selena. I, don't, I don't think that was it was, it, it was a Danish director, was it not? Uh, and that was all shot in the Czech Republic, claiming to be Colorado, which will bring us to our next film soon enough as well. But that was was that not a Danish director? This does sound familiar, but I don't think I was on that show. No, you... you yeah. Just, weren't you? Did we... Oh. Um, anyway, look, it wasn't a terribly memorable film. <laughs> Maybe the Danes ought to steer clear of Westerns. Well, is that what I'm getting here?
2: Levering was one of the Dogma directors too, which is... an. I found that quite interesting um, just in terms of the formal orthodoxy of this movie I found that it was it wasn't very adventurous and I think the westerns can give you a lot of space to to be quite inventive in terms of formal strategies and I was really surprised when I found out that this was one of the dogma dogma people um but that seems to I don't know whether I'm getting nervous about these ex-dogma people that they seem to be making these quite conservative um we talked the other week about Lonnie Scherfig who did the riot club as well she's an ex-dogma I think we'll be talking perhaps about Winterberg, Thomas. Oh,
0: Winterberg? Serena. Serena, not sorry. Serena. Serena. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. sorry, yeah. Yeah, like, like, like,
1: yes. No,
0: you were there. Don't mind me, I'm just filling the
2: air. We can't have silence.
1: <laughs> Serena's not here this week, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> um, just sorry, on... Alex, you were talking about dogma directors. So uh, <laughs> I was just going to jump in on, on the point you're you making about the transition of styles from dogma to this and I think it gets back to what you were saying Thomas, not screaming Serena but the point you made earlier about (laughs) the way in which and my bugbear about the use of visual effects is it didn't use it in an, in an attempt to be hyper realistic and, and stylize the West in an exaggerated manner. Yeah,
0: like, like The Quick and the Dead did, for example. I, exactly what yeah. I was going to
1: say. Yeah. Instead, it does it to try and ape and mimic the 60s sort of spaghetti westerns Ooh. and the Ford westerns, but in, in a way where it, it, the skill wasn't there to create that sense of realism. And if you're going to do that, you just make your film look like a really. Cheap, be Western, and I, I think the film suffers for that to a degree. But the other quick point um, you were making about the things floating on the surface, a bit like the oil, I think that the film may have started out with some ideas, the way in which it collapses so many of those cultural institutions together. We've got we've got religion, we've got religion collapse with the law, collapse with corporations, collapse with government, all as this sort of universal evil. Like all the characters, all the antagonists in this film represent those various institutions. But it doesn't, it's almost as if uh, levering doesn't quite know how to position them in such a way as to mount a cultural critique of those.
3: Yeah, <laughs> look, I've not got much to add. Uh, everything about this is actually, yeah, just pretty. Yeah, even even the train coming to town, everything—it's straight out of old textbook uh, Western scripting one hundred and one type tomes. It's all all yeah, underwhelming.
2: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Let's look at another Western now. Um, similar yeah, time period and setting to um, The Salvation, but a, a very different film. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know what we all think of this one. This is Slow West.
3: Yeah, from director writer John McLean, though one senses that one Michael Fassbender might be almost as important a creative force in this film. Uh the two of them have formed together in two thousand and nine a short film starring Fassbender, directed by McLean, called Man on a Motorcycle, filmed entirely on mobile phones. Apparently did quite good uh not business, short films never do business exactly, but was well received, I believe. Clearly, uh it enamoured the two of them of one another, because here we are a few years later with a Western set. Yes, much uh as the previous film we've discussed uh, at the very end of the 19th century and here allegedly in Colorado, though it really does look uncannily like the South Island of New Zealand for much of its (laughs) runtime to me, which is no bad thing because it's staggeringly beautiful. Um, We meet Jay Cavendish, a 17-year-old young man played by Cody Smith McPhee who has travelled from Scotland uh, to try to find a woman uh, with whom he has a possibly unrequited love affair. he is headed to Colorado in order to try to find her. He is all alone, and one quickly gets the sense that he is well out of his depth. He's headstrong but foolish. He even has an over-encumbered horse that looks like it's on its last legs. However, uh, he meets a chap named Silas, played by Fassbender, who takes him under his wing and possibly has some sort of agenda all his own. We soon discover that Silas knows that Jay's enamorata, Rose, and her father have a bounty on their heads. In fact, she's worth more dead than alive. Silas withholds this information from Jay. We wonder for how long quickly we get the picture that the west and this is very much the american midwest uh is not an altogether um happy place to be it is full of varmints and bandits and uh, duels, and even running a a little store is not likely to leave you on this earth um, this mortal coil for long uh a shootout uh, in a store soon um has basically for us at least as the viewers we soon get the picture that Jay, it should, might not be long for this world either. Will he ever find Rose? Is this whole mission doomed? Apparently heading west, supposedly the great dream, to chase the American dream, is a bad idea. It's already tainted. Anyone coming back from the west has only ill things to say of it. We soon meet a chap named Payne by Ben Mendelsohn. We sense that Payne and Silas have some history. Payne somehow is absent on his person. I'd love to know that backstory. It doesn't really come up. Um, and what's Payne's agenda? What's Silas's agenda? It's a film of cross and double cross and with just some odd little elements thrown in. There are some odd folk wandering or, in fact, sometimes just sitting very still in the middle of the West here, including three French-speaking black men singing a song, the something Congo. That's quite peculiar. I really do not know how to position that in either space or time. Um, And uh very true to the new zealand setting where this was all shot there is incredible light and an absolutely mind-boggling night sky uh twice in the canterbury region of new zealand is famous for its astro tourism in fact i've never seen a western where so much focus has been on it's quite such a startlingly beautiful night sky really i think it was probably just there to appease people at the new zealand tourist board because it doesn't actually serve much narrative purpose but goddamn, it's pretty um Look, I I found this film extremely gorgeous to behold, but not actually unlike The Salvation. It has a few issues. It's it's all a bit superficial. You know it's all going to lead to some sort of a big shootout. Not everyone's going to be a winner. And um, in the end, it's ultimately all fairly inconsequential. Am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah, I I had trouble wrapping my head around this film
0: a little bit. At times it felt like I was watching a theatrical production. And I think it's very deliberately highly stylized and constructed and there is talk in the film, among the characters, about the mythology that's being formed as we speak, there's a really fascinating encounter with uh, with, with Werner. This um, oh, what is he? He's sort of a, a writer, a sort of a yeah, ethnographer. An ethnographer, or ethnographer yeah. yeah. He says that you know that these myths are being created already, and so you have all these people in the film, I suppose, playing these versions of the mythology. At the time, and I think thats that was very much the point of the film. I had this really strange reaction where I admired this film on almost an academic level, but I, it felt like it was keeping me at arm 's length the entire time i, I couldn 't connect with it and i 've only recently started doing things like comparing it to, to Dead Man, which I think has a similar kind of feel that it went for, but Dead man just Beautifully seduces you into its world, and even though Dead Man is like, this quite a postmodern film, and I think this is classical postmodernism in that it's there's elements of parody and pastiche. They're sort of sending up the genre, but also being reverential towards it. Dead Man manages to still connect with you. Where this film kept me at arm's length. There's weird sight gags in here, and really punny sight gags that, and, and moments of slapstick that sort of take you right out of the action. It's it's really funny and entertaining, but it's it, it just seems a joke uh, with some of the other stuff that, that comes before it. I actually quite like this film, but I, I I really struggled to have any deep feeling for it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to exa- exactly know how to position myself with this film. And I think the key thing is that. I, I admired it, but I didn't connect with it.
2: I was a lot more positive about uh, Slow West than I was The Salvation. I, I did... Uh, first of all, look, the, the on-screen relationship between uh, Mendelssohn... Um, And Fazbender really worked for me. I thought they were really magical. Maybe it's just eye candy. I don't know. Maybe I just like Mendo on screen. I just thought... And his name is Pain. I thought he was... He was like something from a Tom Waits song. His name is
1: Pain. That's a great name for a Western.
2: He just looked like he was having the time of his life. And there was something really contagious about um, Mendelssohn especially. But also uh, Fazbender. I think. Much like Mads Mikkelsen, I think that he really loves Westerns. And you could just feel him really throwing himself into the the joy of it. Um, I... I really liked this focus on on folklore, this this internal um, self-awareness, I guess, of of the importance of mythology. Um, I mean, it's literally a film about white Europeans trying to get their head around the symbolism or logic of the American frontier or the myth of the American frontier, and that literally becomes a life-or-death issue, and I thought that was quite clever, but, as you said, perhaps a little clinical, and I could see how that could be felt to be, um, yeah, a little dry, perhaps. Um, I... I think for me, in a way, the, the big comparisons that I'd heard in terms of its humour um, are to the Coen's westerns, in that it's a kind of black comedy western, but I found it really different from, from what the Coen brothers were doing. I think it's a totally different kind of humour.
0: Yeah, I didn't get that at all. Um, no. Yeah,
2: no, I was sort of a little bit bewildered by that, aside from the fact that they're black comedies and they're westerns. Mm. But I also really want to give a shout-out to the... Um, I thought the music in this film was fantastic, which is um, Jed Kurtzel, who's Justin Kurtzel, director of Snowtown's brother... And of course, Fazbender's just um, appeared in Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah. So there's there's all uh, which is Justin Kurzel's new film. So these things are all tying in together. And also John McLean. I mentioned this on the Breakfasters the other day. John McLean's Bruce Willis's character from Die Hard. And I have in my mind there's an alternate universe where Bruce Willis's character from Die Hard directed a western. <laughs> and that's the best of both worlds. Yippee
1: ki yay, Mother
2: <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm glad someone. I'm, I was very glad listening to your Breakfasters review that um, that you mentioned that. <laughs> because that sustained me for the first ten minutes of the film, just <laughs> laughing about this was directed by John McLean. Um Look, this film didn't sit at all well <laughs> with me, although I appreciate it, a bit like you actually, Thomas, um, intellectually I think this is a far more interesting film and certainly more ambitious than The Salvation. I mean, we talked about the, the potential of The Salvation to explore the, ro- the notion of the immigrant tale. Well, this certainly does. I mean, almost everyone that Jay and Silas meet along the way are immigrants of various kinds um i'm not sure that mclean pulls it off or executes or explores that idea effectively and i want to come back to the comparison that you made thomas comparing this to dead man because i think for me I- structurally, at least, I think one of the central problems with this film, or the difficulties that I have with it, it seems to be caught between working in a revisionist postmodern Western in the realm of, or register of, say, Dead Man, and there are scenes and sequences here that work, or that appear to be trying to work on that mythopoetic register, like the dialogue is slightly off-kilter, the tone is almost dreamlike, which we get, you know, executed perfectly by Jarmusch in, in Dead Man, but at the same time the structure of the narrative is not the meandering stranger in a strange world, it's the mission centric, Jay and Silas finding the woman, and, and of course the mission centred around this question of of you know the money, the reward, who will meet who which is far more akin to the traditional westerns like True Grit and I think the fact that the, the Ross family, the Rose Ross and, and, and her father, who Jay is trying to get to, is the same surname from Maddie Ross which is the family in True Grit. I I think, again, it suggests perhaps this director is trying to do these two things, and I don't think he executes it at all well. And I also think there's an abundance of, of Western tropes here that aren't Explored. They feel like they're there as window dressing to remind the audience that this is a, a Western. We've got the the posse. We've got the backstory about the posse. I mean, you mentioned Mendelssohn. He owns that scene, but he's only in the film for about two and a half minutes. And for a film that's 80 minutes long, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough for me to justify his presence. I'm actually going to make a claim which I don't normally do. I think this film would have actually been far more interesting with another 40 minutes if it had actually explored all those various subtales, subtext. Plot points that are that are alluded to, that feel so rushed over and almost feel inauthentic and and disingenuous the way in which McLean executes it to, to the fact that the end feels far more like Blazing Saddles than it does you know a western and the end of this film I, look I don't I don't know how anyone could approach the end of this film with a straight face it's like student film one oh one I don't yeah. I, you know, I mean that's so maybe I'm focusing more on
3: the negatives but. Like
1: I think you're you're right to acknowledge acknowledge
3: that there are interesting elements in here. There is there is I agree, Josh. A lot that is quite throwaway in there. And I think, for example, of uh, it's raised that there's a forest there that many of Payne's men won't follow uh, Silas and Jay into because they have superstitions, and it's left at that. What sort of superstitions did they learn these superstitions from the Native Americans? But none of them are Native Americans. So what, what superstitions do these people have? Somehow that doesn't seem to much trouble them. They catch up on the other side of the forest effortlessly seemingly anyway so it's all a bit uh um inconsequential um then there's that really odd story told I mean, it's sort of entertaining this uh, hoary old fellow at a campfire tells a, a humorous anecdote and we see it uh, in a flashback and there 's this very weird voice over lip sync thing done where the voice uh, the narrator of the story 's voice is heard through the the mouth movements of a much younger man and that 's really peculiar uh, it just sort of took me out of the film as well, um, and the flashbacks to Scotland as yeah. well, which
1: seem out of it t- stylistically from like a BBC period drama and melodrama even. yeah
3: yeah so it, it, it is a really odd film, but that said, I, I was still really taken by the photography it is sumptuous the the light Light there is not like the light I've seen in any other Western, perhaps outside of a film that took it that's a little bit further. And that's the Thai uh, comedy Western of years back, Tears of the Black Tiger, which I adore. Yeah, me like, too. Uh, like oh, a, I remember yeah, that. that was great magnificent. A, a crazy yes. Douglas Serkian melodramatic Western splatter flick of, <laughs> yeah. um, That was a great film. Genius, yep. yeah. But uh, yeah, um, I, I found quite a bit to admire in this film, but also. Almost as much to be underwhelmed by.
2: I really like the colour palette a lot. I did get the feeling just hearing you guys talk there were moments I don't think this is giving much away, but there's a montage near the end of the film where it shows you all of the people who have died. Is that that's yeah. A, yeah, that's true? I said it now, so yeah. I'm sorry if it yeah. is a spoiler. I don't think that's a spoiler. No, it's not a spoiler. And really. it's it's quite a um, quite an ambitious, formal thing to do and it's quite striking. I don't think it had the effect on me that it was aiming for. I found it perhaps a little bit art school, like you said, but I acknowledged that it was trying to do something a a little bit different but I had a a sort of moment of of almost a Tarantino-esque moment where I thought, is this referencing something and I just don't know what it is? And I did get that feeling a few times through the film. I don't know perhaps as much about Westerns as I should but there were these moments that I kept thinking that there were these in-jokes that I just wasn't privy to. How much should
3: one know about Westerns? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: I think you you can make the argument it's the definitive American genre. Mm.
3: And why aren't any Americans making them? Or or in America. Well,
0: this is a curious thing, yeah. All, All these people from other countries are now making them and weirdly setting
3: a lot of them in America. Mm. And yet not revising them necessarily. Yeah.
2: Post-classical, I'll say it again, yeah. post-classical pre,
3: Pre-revisionist, pre-pre-revisionist.
1: I mean,
2: Post-revisionist pre- West. Th- that was the other,
1: I guess, the <laughs> thing, thing that really took me out of this was the depiction of Native Americans I thought was pretty insensitive, to pretty say the least. And, and I mean, that scene where they go into the mysterious Hobbiton forest and, you know, they're kind of jumping up and down, and, you know, it was just kind of preposterous. I mean, this is something we haven't seen since the, she's the 50s even. The only thing.
0: I thought about that is were they trying to show us the different versions of the mythology surrounding what the Native Americans are. I mean, there is a scene where they direct, directly say that the, the Natives who are getting slaughtered, we're going to think of them as mythological beings. And the film kind of showed us these different versions of how they've been depicted throughout uh, American cinema. So, again, so maybe that's what they were doing.
1: Again, I can see the, the intellectual justification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how this would have looked great as a script. If you, I was reading this I'd be, and you, know, you talk about the montage, there's so many ideas and stylistic traits in here, but I think it, for me it's the execution just fell short. It's yeah. not coherent. Yeah. No, I think what they are doing with the Western now is they're taking a lot of the, the tropes
0: and ideas from the Western and setting them in more contemporary settings. We'll be talking about a film that I think does just that in just a moment. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
2: Well, Alberto Rodriguez's Marshland opens with breathtaking satellite photography of the Andalusian wetlands around the Guadalquivir River in Spain. The cinematography is so breathtaking that, honestly, on its like for, for these opening sequences alone, it's worth seeing this in a cinema. That absolutely breathtaking, really, really beautiful. But they're also thematically important. They emphasise the idea of distance and of looking at something from afar and seeing it in a new way, and that's really, really central to what's going on in this film, not just in terms to um, the act of investigation that on surface governs this film. It's generically, I guess, a pretty straightforward police procedural in many senses, but more importantly in regards to um, what is, I think, the factor that grants this film its real punch. It's politics. Now, Marchand, um is set in 1980 and it follows two cops a la true detective as they investigate the murder of two teenage girls and link it to another, um, another couple of disappearances in the area. But this is much more than a straightforward who done whodunit. Um, the year is super important um, and it does more than allow a bit of period-based mise-en-scene in the film, which is actually quite terrific in its own right. Now, this was only five years after the death of Spanish dictator um, Generalissimo Franco, so we see, even in the first five minutes of the film, the young cop, or the younger of the two cops, Pedro, played by Raul Arevalo, who is incredible. He's kind of like the actor that I always wanted Vincent Gallo to be. He's
1: oh,
0: He's, good just, call. he's, yeah, he's fantastic. just
2: fantastic in this yeah. film. He's, he's, there's a genre of guy that I define as guys Madonna would have been into in the, 80, in the 90s, <laughs> oh. and Raul Arevalo is one of these guys. Magnificent moustache.
3: Along with the singer from Gogo Bordello. Absolutely. They did work together, whatever that's, his
2: name was. I that's a, this is a genre of of dude, this is officially a tangent, isn't it? Yeah. All right, back we go. <laughs> Serena. So... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. And uh, the first five minutes of the room, of the film, Pedro um, walks into his hotel room and he sees on the wall a crucifix with photos of Hitler and Franco stuck into the crucifix, and that kind of sets up um, a lot of what this film will be contending with. Now his older partner. Um, uh, Juan, paid by Yevia uh, Gutierrez, apologies for my pronunciation there. Um, he's not so bothered, and the film reveals that he may or may not have had close ties with Franco's reign of terror, that actually casts some pretty dark irony over um, Juan's role investigating the torture and murder of innocents. Now, in part, the focus of Marshland on police corruption. makes it as a kind of continuation, in a way, of Rodriguez's 2012 thriller Unit 7. But I think there's a lot more going on. This actually reminded me of a film that's not not as well known called Night of the Sunflowers, um, an amazing Spanish thriller, um, which I guess is fundamentally a kind of Spanish updating of Rashomon, of all things. It's an incredible film. Um, Both Night of the Sunflowers and Marshland have a kind of... Indefinable sadness to them. There's a real sense of futility that runs through these films, a kind of feeling of something lost that can never be retrieved, a kind of something that comes after that kind of political trauma that you can never undo, that kind of damage that goes beyond the crime and punishment narrative that structures this film. I found, I think this is a remarkable movie. It was hugely successful in Spain, it swept the Goyas the year that it was released, perhaps unsurprisingly.
0: Yeah, I, um, one of my biggest thrills is when a film is not on my radar in the slightest and I happen to see it and it, it just hits me for six. This was such a surprise and a revelation. I adored this film and I kept on thinking, how did the filmmakers read my mind and make the kind of film that I love? And, you know, it, it, is, a, it is a genre film. It's a gritty detective investigation, you know, with a ser- serial, serial killer theme and ideas of a, a corrupt small town. I mean, it's that kind of twin peak blueprint actually and, and, and they use this generic investigation to explore deep political and ideological issues that are very particular to that time and place and we, you know, every now and every year you get a collection of these narratives that does this and it really excites me. Australia did it with Mystery Road um, Argentina did it with the beautiful The Secret in Their Eyes uh, and you get it on television as well with New Zealand we are top of the lake and of course with America True Detective and this feels like a Spanish True Detective I mean it's set in the deep south of Spain, and, and there is this sense of lawlessness, and, and I had no idea that there were so many Franco-sympathisers and pro-fascist people who were sort of left behind in the, in the early 80s, and you've got these mismatched cops, one who's been in trouble in the past for speaking out against this, and one who is very ambiguous, and I like that character, they set you up with all these ideas about some secret he's hiding, but um, there's actually a, another secret that's even more important that comes in the play later. Look, the film looks gorgeous, um, it's complex, I I love a convoluted film where I don't quite follow it all, and that doesn't matter. I'm excited to see this film again. I really enjoy discussing it with my partner when I saw this film, and and sort of trying to work out exactly what had happened. And I love the editing. I mean, this film zips along at a pace that was so refreshing and exciting. It made me realise I'm kind of sick of slow narratives at the moment. I'm sick. I'm sick of things unfolding slowly. And I love being thrown into a film that uses it's 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 you know the, the space of the film and the time so economically to deliver all these ideas and kind of visual stim- stimuli. A really exciting film. I'm so glad I happened to see this because it wasn't one on my radar at all.
1: Yeah, we're finishing things on, on very much a high note I think tonight because I love this film as well and, and like you Thomas, this was out of the blue. It was whoever yeah. wh- whoever out of the cave decided we should cover this. Kudos to you. It certainly wasn't me but this was a great, great film. <laughs> yeah, okay Alex, you take props for this one. <laughs> me, um, me, me. This was thoroughly engrossing. Like, you know, those just from those opening overhead shots of the the natural landscape, and you're right. I think that's a perfect reading. This idea of being removed, and the historical remove, and the remove from the past, and also being not grounded in the, in the landscape. But the look of those shots of the swampland reminded me of both veins and also the texture of the brain. And so much of this is about the physical body being lost in those swamplands. I mean, mm. it's such, such smart filmmaking. The whole the whole way through. But the other thing which you've both mentioned is the way in which it weds the political critique and political exploration with a really taught genre film. I don't think there's many filmmakers that can pull it off as effectively as as we see here in, in, in Marshlands. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's such a it's such a fine line in many ways, so you don't tilt the balance too far in favour of the the narrative and ignore the history or or vice versa. And this film is is so clever in the way in which it does it, given that this is post-Franco, but pre- 1982 election, and what you have is this murky political ground where sympathies and sympathisers are still at odds. This is contested political space and this is contested community space and you know this idea of the culture of silence, the stains of the past, the things that people don't want to talk about that are always just bubbling under the surface with the characters in this film, which has such kind of strong echoes politically. Look, uh, Yeah, I think this is a wonderful film. I think maybe, given that this was produced, I think, the same year as season one of True Detective, maybe we should sort of twist things a little bit. Maybe True Detective should be referred to as the the Spanish Marshlands. The the, American Marshlands. The American Marshlands. Yeah,
0: it's uncanny, the similarities between those two, that television show and this film. So I know there's a lot of True Detective fans out there. I reckon you should go and check out Marshlands. One interesting thing that or a lot of these stories have in common as well, is that the victims, the original investigations, are often young girls who have been sexually abused and murdered. This is common in so many of these stories. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on perhaps why. I mean, maybe it's a sort of... it's a symbol of incredible loss of, of, of innocence or the way these cultures prey upon themselves. And, and you know, all these texts reference some of the revolting double standards. And there's a beautiful bit of dialogue in this film, actually close to the start, where one of the cops asks about... um He asks one of the locals, can you tell me about the girls? And the, the, the guy says, oh, you know, they, they were known for wanting to have a good time. And he says, what, and, and you don't? You know, the, the way this film kind of addresses the way that the, these girls became sort of... You know, that they were so preyed upon by the town in in many, many ways. And, you know, there's almost two sets of villains in this film as well.
2: I, I watched the film and two or three days later, I mean, it's what I mean by it being an ambivalent whodunit in that mm. I don't think it's actually... I think that structures the film, but I forgot who did it, mm. I actually, because I don't think the film's really that... That's not where the punch of this film comes. There's so much more going on. Yeah, the
0: whole community is culpable is the absolutely. idea. And I yeah. think
2: this focus on, on the status of the victims is absolutely essential. And it, it links, I think, quite explicitly to your earlier ref- reference to Twin Peaks mm. in, and certainly a lot of these other narratives. But in Twin Peaks and Marshland, it's, it's young women who are defined and punished for their desperation to escape. Yeah, and yep. and that's made very explicit in both both Twin Peaks and certainly in this film. This this is what makes them victims is is their desire to escape, their desire for to, to wish for a better life.
0: I think you get that mystery themselves. road as well. Yeah, and yeah. I think
2: that's really significant. So I think that almost transcends just innocence. Like young the young girl as a figure of innocence and and sexual experience as a, as a kind of knowingness or an entry into the world of adult knowledge. I think it's more than that. I think that that they have a nerve or, a, or even a degree of bravery. Um, or courage to that they don't want to live in this kind of world anymore. They want a world that's different. And, um, and in Twin Peaks, Laura, of course, I- explores that in a very different way mm. than the girls in Marshland, who it's literally leaving town. Like they're, they're trying to skip town.
1: And that takes on a really strong religious connotation in the context of 1980s Spain as well, with you know the, the influence of Catholicism, like you mentioned. The cross is the, the first mega-symbol that we see at the the beginning of the film, and the fact that it is sexual violence, and these women have been tortured sexually as well, I think, is, a, is an important point in the context of the back, back to the political aspects, and, and the resonance of, of the past as well, not just as a... I don't think... I mean, this is one of the, the things that's been uh, a critical talking point recently, is the use of rape or sexual violence as a Plot point mm. and does it deserve to be there? Should it be on screen? Does it have a place? you know Game of Thrones being a kind of a, a key case study recently. And I think this is an interesting one in terms of the way it 's not just a plot point it 's not just there to evoke sympathy it 's not just there to motivate the male detective 's cause in some way. We, are, we have a deep connection to the victims of this film, and it goes beyond just the surface plot level
0: i think it 's a really important point it 's also to show us that this is a very hierarchical society and Uh, Yeah, and there there are people who are untouchable and then there are sort of people in the middle who tend to be the ones who get caught up in the conflict regardless of what uh, either side they're on. And and that's part of the ambivalence of this film. Um, uh, It's not a straightforward ending as well. It's incredibly bittersweet. And and I'm still deciding... I don't quite know how I feel about the ending in in a really positive way too. I
2: felt the same. It's one of those films that I watched and then wanted to watch it immediately again. It was um, like I... I watched it really closely and I need to watch it again because I still feel again that sense of distance that the film flags for me from the very beginning and I love that. It's very uh it's I was going to say clever but I think it's more than that. I think the word that you Josh that you used was knowing. It's very knowing about um, spectatorial engagement on, on, on that front. And
1: that, that balance between resolution and ambiguity. Again, mm. this is something that I think are hallmarks of talented filmmakers. These are difficult difficult technical aspects and, and narrative and structural elements to pull off, but this filmmaker does it. This is, feels like the work of a very accomplished filmmaker.
0: Yeah, th- this is ambition that has been seen through. So look, we would really urge people to go and check out Martial It wasn't on our radar and we're very grateful that we all, we all saw it. It sort of it gave me a bit of hope, got me excited <laughs> Again, actually, because
1: you know, <laughs> genre in cinema, is... Josh, yeah, I was ready to call quits on, on everything midway through this week, but Marshland has restored my faith in, in cinema. <laughs>
0: sorry that was that's a good note to end on I think um, if you want to find out a bit more about us and, or if you want to get in touch go to the Triple R website and visit the Plato's Cave page we put up song lists uh, the details of the films we've discussed and any interesting links you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter just search for Plato's Cave Film and of course do drop us an email at platoscavefilm at gmail.com the podcast version of this is also available on iTunes and I keep meaning to say go and give us a rating give, give us a nice review you give us a nice rating, it will help get the Platovian Cavian wording out there, so please do that. Tonight we've talked about The Salvation. is available on DVD, Blu ray, and various digital platforms through Man Man Entertainment. Slow West is on limited release through Transmission Films. And Marshlands is on limited release through Vendetta Films. Next week we'll be talking about Jurassic World. And a whole lot more, but Jurassic World's the big one, isn't it?
1: Yes! <laughs> <laughs> uh, gonna... Dinosaurs going, growl!
0: <laughs> Good night. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly
3: independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au